So everything I just said was off the record. <laughs> All right, if you guys will turn to Romans 13, as Mike said, as Micah pointed out. Uh, I'm excited to be with you guys. I'm excited to go through Romans 13. I'll be honest, though, when Mike had texted me <clears throat> to ask if I would teach for him, I knew he was in Romans, and I was like secretly hoping I'd get something like Romans 8 or 6 or 1, you know, something really fun to do. And uh, whenever he ended up telling me it was Romans 13, my, my gut reaction was, ah, oh, no, you're going to have a 22-year-old come in and fill in for you and talk about the government. How does this sound like a good idea? Well, um, hopefully it will end up being a good idea because Romans 13 uh, is, a, is a chapter that, if you're not familiar with it, it's one to really get familiar with. Uh, Romans itself is what I call, or what has been called, like the Bible book. The entire Bible can be found in the book of Romans, and you can read a lot of expositors who say the same thing. Uh, every facet of our Christian faith can surprisingly be found completely mentioned, or mentioned at least in part, at some part, in the book of Romans. It's one of these books that if you had to pick one book out of the entire 66 uh, that make up the volume of the scripture that we have, it would be the book of Romans. Okay, it covers everything that touches and relates to us as Christians in our lives. And what I love about that is that it's really broke up into these sections. So you have 1 through 8 is these amazing scriptures where Paul is laying down the foundation for our faith and who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us and what it means to the old Adam and the new Adam. And it's brilliant and it's invigorating and you read it and you're just like, oh my goodness, it's so good to be a Christian. And then you get to Romans 9 through 11 and it throws you for a loop and you have no idea what's going on. Like, why is Paul talking about Israel? And I thought this was for me as a Gentile believer, but it's good though because we are in our identity with Christ related to the country of Israel. So it's amazing how even in a book entitled Romans to a bunch of Gentile believers, Paul is still um, addressing a very important part of our Christian faith, which is our relationship to Israel, our relationship to uh, the Jewish believers as well as Jewish unbelievers and how we should react to them and what our hearts should really be towards them in a very anti-Semitic world, which is unfortunately the one that we live in. Every era that's ever been, there's been anti-Semitism. And especially now, if you watch the news, if you keep up with what's going on, there's a lot of anti-Semitism uh, just raging at this point. But then you get done with Romans 9 through 11 and you come into Romans 12 and it's like back at it. You're just like, yes. I love this book. I'm reminded why I love this book. It's amazing. It's really for me. And then you hit Romans 13. And for seven verses, you're just frustrated. Like there's, there's no other way around it. It's just frustrating. No one wants to really read this. No one really wants to deal with it. But I found that generally in my very young stint of life on this earth, the churches I've been in struggle with the Romans 13 attitude more than anything else. Because generally there's two uh, attitudes that churches take towards government, towards politics. They either idolize it and it becomes such a huge part of their life that it is um, bad, honestly. It doesn't do them any good. Or they completely shun it and they forget about it. Both extremes are very, very wrong. And the reason why I love Romans is that it's a book where you can see balance. It's perfect. Because in this book where you have all of these different things coming and mixing together and creating this beautiful tapestry that is the Christian life, Paul is very, very determined and um, pointedly takes seven verses to cover what a Christian's attitude towards a, a authoritative government, towards 
uh, the um, governing powers should be. And I love that it's only seven verses. Because I think that's actually really cool. You know, you have 15 chapters in the entire book. I didn't look up, or 16, I'm sorry. I didn't look up exactly how many verses you have there, but only seven. And I think that's really important for us to understand that there is a balance in dealing with politics, in dealing with the government, in dealing with these issues, these current event issues that we deal with on a daily basis. They shouldn't be ignored, they should be um, addressed, and here we see Paul do it in seven verses, and it's actually pretty beautiful. So that being said, um, you know, if this set of scriptures has ever confused or kind of condemned you, I really am excited to go through it with you because for me personally, uh, really under- digging into it and really trying to understand what God is trying to say through the pen of Paul has encouraged me in my Christian life, and especially right now in such a politically tumultuous time. You know, if ever there was a time for this scripture, it's right now in 2015 of July. Because, I mean, we've got the elections coming up next year. I mean, all this craziness is happening all over the world. The economic systems are just haywire. Countries are going bankrupt. And there's all of this tension everywhere. I mean, you turn on the news and it's like 24-7 news channel turned into 24-7 hate channel, right? That's all that's being fed at you. That's all that's being put at you. You look on Facebook and there are pictures of people burning the American flag. And then you have other pictures of people you know, burning Confederate flags and, you know, people lighting incense to American flags and Confederate flags and all this kind of stuff. And you say, where is the balance? Where, where as a Christian do I find the anchor that's going to hold my opinion of how I should view everything that's going on around me? And that's where Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 come into play. So let's go ahead and let's read through it. Let every soul be subject, verse 1, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute the wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And we'll stop right there. First thing I want to say is that there's a lot of kind of general terms used here. Uh, government powers. In fact, if you read the King James Version, it just uses the word powers over and over. The powers that be type idea there. That word in the Greek, um, I can't really pronounce it very well. It's uh, exosa, I think is how you would say it. I'm not really too sure on that. But if you look, it's a word that's used continually throughout the New Testament. And it can mean everything from uh, judicial authority to Christ's authority to the Apostle Paul's authority to parental authority, okay? Here specifically, it is talking about magistrates and judicial authorities, talking about governors and mayors, or what we would consider in America, presidents and Congress and Supreme Court, all that kind of good stuff. So with that in mind, let's be completely honest. Reading through that, if you didn't have a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction to some of those verses like, for the rulers are not a tear to good works, but to evil, 
And then, for he is God's minister to you for good. For he. Well, who is he? A God's minister. Well, if we're talking about judicial authority here, that's going to make a few of us go feel a little queasy inside when we read that. You know, we're going to feel a little like, oh my goodness, did I just read that out of the Bible? So it's kind of interesting. Why do we as Christians, why do we as people have that reaction to Romans 13? Why do we kind of have a knee-jerk reaction when you read through it? You know, uh, whether you're a liberal, far leftist, or you're a conservative who's in, deeply embanked on the right. Either one, you read through something that's talking about some, submitting yourself to government, because no one's really happy with whoever's in government right now, right? No one really is. If you're a Democrat, you're not really happy. If you're a Republican, you're not really happy. If you're a Libertarian, you're never happy, you know? So, so why do we have that reaction, though? Well, I'll offer you this. I think it's because of who we are as human beings in ourselves. Genetically, we are disposed to have a rebellion towards any kind of submission, any time, kind of government. And if you'll turn with me to Genesis 3, we'll explore that a little better. Genesis 3, which chronicles the fall of man. Verse 17 points out how we, going all the way back to our first parents, are genetically disposed to not be submissive to any kind of authority. In fact, because you guys know the story, Adam and Eve, they're created. Eve was the last creation after Adam, and they're living together in the garden. And God tells who not to eat from the tree? Well, God tells Adam not to eat from the tree. And then Adam tells Eve. But then Eve is deceived by the serpent, right? Well, was Adam deceived by the serpent? No. Adam wasn't deceived at all. In fact, it says that Adam committed a sin of commission. He willingly went against the ordinances of God. He willingly rebelled against submission to God by taking of the fruit. And it says here in verse 17 of chapter 3, Then to Adam, God said, and this is after they'd been found out, after the sin had been exposed, He said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But right there, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I, God, commanded you, saying, you shall not eat. So even going back to the very first human being ever, we have a genetic disposition to rebel against authority. But as you guys know, we're more than just flesh and bone, aren't we? We're a little deeper than that. We have a spirit. So let's look at the spiritual side of things. If you guys will uh, turn with me over to Isaiah 14. Being more than just one-dimensional creatures, not only does our flesh itself, and by flesh I literally mean your, your capillaries and your blood vessels and your skin and bone and your brain and all of the lobes and all that kind of good stuff, not only is that literally has a disposition to rebel, and anyone who's been a parent knows that their child has a disposition to rebel against them no matter how much that child loves them because discipline is needed in parenting, right? Not only is that level apparent, but also the spiritual level. Because of Adam's fall, because of his um, descent from grace, now, as we covered in Romans, all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? We've covered that. So let's look at what was the instigator for our spiritual depravity? What was the instigator for our spiritual fall away from submission? Well, we all know in the Garden of Eden that the serpent was Satan, right? So let's take a look at Satan. Let's look at his profile. Here in Isaiah 14, we get a very interesting look, one of two places in the scripture 
where Satan is actually having a dialogue with God. It's very interesting. And he says, starting in verse 12, uh, which this isn't Satan talking in verse 12. This is Isaiah prophesying, but he starts in uh, 13. But we'll start in 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, and here we go into actual Lucifer's dialogue, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of congregation. On the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And yet you shall be, you, Lucifer, shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. So really, from a human point of view, we are fighting an uphill battle from the time that we're born. Genetically, we're disposed to rebellion. Spiritually, we're disposed to rebellion. So uh, for us to read through Romans 13 and kind of feel a little knee-jerk reaction, that's because we as creatures are rebellious creatures. It's not in our nature to go, man, I love submitting to government. I love paying taxes. I love election season. And every time I'm watching my Friday night show, seeing the different ads pop up for all of the vote for me, vote for that kind of stuff. No, we kind of hate it deep down. So because of this, Paul is addressing it and God addresses it. Now I think it's really interesting taking a moment to look, if if our problem with submission is a human problem, if it's something that we can't control, I mean, we can't help being human, you know. I mean, there are people in our media that unfortunately think men can help being men and then they can turn themselves into women. But honestly, that's still a human problem. We can't help being human. We are who we are. So what is the solution? And honestly, if you read through the Bible, if you read through these scriptures, there's always the same answer. Every solution to a human problem is more of Jesus, more of the Word, more of the Bible. That's how you find out. That's how he unravels things and then gives new life and gives submission where submission isn't, takes rebellion out of you. Have you guys ever thought much about the Sermon on the Mount that you find in Matthew? I think it's very interesting. You can find it in Matthew 5, and you can find it starting in Luke 6, too, those two accounts of it. Sermon on the Mount is arguably one of the more famous philosophical, religious sermons ever given. I mean, it is a beautiful, amazing piece of work. Christ lays out some of the most uh, influential words that have ever been spoken by a human being. And yet, have you ever wondered why we find it at Matthew 5? It's really interesting, because at this point, we're early in Jesus' ministry. He's traveled all around the Galilee. He's come up to Jerusalem. He's standing on the Mountain of Olives, and he gives this amazing speech. This, uh, you know, uh, nobody's really too upset about it. I mean, it's beautiful. People don't really fully understand it. I mean, they're saying stuff, he's saying stuff about, like, cutting off your arm if it offends you and plucking out your eye. But it's so beautiful, though, that people are kind of like, okay, well, we're going to look past that, you know. Um, But have you ever wondered why it's at chapter 5? Because Christ actually calls you to do some impossible things in chapter 5 of Matthew. In fact, if you will, let's turn there and look at one of these impossible things that Christ calls you to do. And we're going to be at the very end of chapter 5. We're actually going to just read this uh, five verses here, starting in verse 43 of chapter 5 of Matthew. You guys didn't know I was going to make you turn so many places in your Bible, did you? All right, so starting in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, 
Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you, if you greet your brethren, only what you do, only what do you, sorry, let's start that over again. If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I don't know about you guys, and I know that probably in this room, there are certain people who do have legitimate enemies. I can speak for myself. I have never met a legitimate enemy in my life. I've met acquaintances, whether at work or through recreation, that don't like me, that would rather not be around me. But I've never really met someone who would legitimately destroy everything I love and care about and then destroy me. And by destroy, I mean like kill, murder, brutally just wipe off the face of the earth. Now, I know that there are people, even in this community, who have enemies. I work in EMS here in Ironton. I see that kind of stuff on a regular basis. There are enemies in little towns like this. But I don't know, I don't know that. Okay. So for me to be told, love your enemies, is almost doubly impossible because I don't really have anyone that I consider an enemy. I have, like I said, I have people who don't like me. I've worked jobs that I won't ever go back and reapply because I did not leave a good impression there or they didn't leave a good impression with me. So for me, I have to go down to the next level to where it's like, love your acquaintances that you don't like. <laughs> love the people that annoy you. Love the people that frustrate you. And even on that level, it's impossible for me to do so. Why? Because I'm human and I want to love the people that love me and I want to just ignore the people that don't. Okay? So this is an impossible thing that Christ is asking us to do on the basis of who we are as humans. But you know what? Matthew 5 isn't Matthew 5 and not Matthew 25. Because whenever you get done reading Matthew 5 and you go through and you read Matthew 7 and then you finish out the Sermon on the Mount, you have the rest of the book to watch Jesus Christ be the first example of loving your enemies until the end. You have the rest of the book to then watch the Sermon on the Mount lived out until his dying breath. And what did he say when he was on the cross? He said what? Forgive them. He said it was finished before that. Forgive them for they know not what they do. Even in a moment when God was watching his enemies destroy, mutate, murder his only child, his only child looked up at the father and said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Okay, that's the impossible thing that me and you cannot do. We might want to do it. There might be some kind of anthropological urge inside of you that would make you want to do Everything that you could, but you cannot produce that kind of love apart from Jesus Christ. And I bring that up because as you look through Romans, here we have a very hard scripture to understand. How am I supposed to submit to an evil government? Okay, that's what it comes down to. How am I supposed to submit to a government I disagree with? Well, I would offer up this. If Christ can teach you how to love your enemies, and he has an entire Bible worth of proof that he did, and that he can show you, he can show you how to live and how to submit in times such as these. How to live a life that is godly in the midst of a regime like ours. And actually next week, I'm actually only going to cover these first seven verses in the, in the uh, issue of time, but one thing that's really interesting 
is that Paul brings into the next seven verses. This is a uh, what you'd call a um, uh, symmetrical chapter. It's split into two pieces. So there's seven verses, and then there's another seven verses. Seven verses deal with submitting to government, a very hard task to do. The other seven verses show you how, kind of like that Matthew principle. You have Matthew 5 telling you to love your neighbors. You have the rest of the book explaining how. And that how is found yet again in love. I think that's kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, of all the things for Paul to have tacked on to the end of a little lecture about government, I've never been in a conversation, whether I'm talking with, like I said, liberals or conservatives, and I've got friends that are both, I've got family that are both. I've never been in a conversation where at the end of it, we just started talking about brotherly love and Jesus, ever. But you know what Paul does? He finishes it up by talking about love and talking about Jesus Christ, because only through love can we accomplish the impossible. And that's really the essence of the Christian life in general. But that's next week. Let's focus on this seven verses. Let's take a closer look. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities, back in Romans 13, verse 1. For, this is no, for, this, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. It's a very important verse to understand. You realize that government is instituted by God. Government is not a man-made institution. God ordained that we should be governed by himself, but then we rejected that, right? We see that in the scriptures plainly. So then what does God do? Oh, well, you know what? I'm going to go sit on my Mount Olympus and just watch you guys do whatever you do. No, God actually structured government. We have a president right now because it was God's idea for us to have a president. It wasn't our forefathers' idea for us to have a president. It wasn't Congress's idea for us to have a president. We have a president. We have a Supreme Court because God is the orchestrator behind all of that. He's the one that puts all of those people there, and government itself is a God-instituted institution. Okay? Is that easy to understand? No, it's not. Take a look at the 19th century. It is so not easy to understand. But it's what we have in the Bible, and it's a truth. And we'll actually tie that, that idea of how it's not easy to understand in at the very end of the sermon, I promise. But let's continue and let's look on. So that is a fact. We have it there in verse 1. God institutes government. He puts people in places of authority. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. I think it's important at this point to just take a look and take a moment to look at the life of the Apostle Paul briefly. He spent... Uh, a couple, uh, more than once he was in prison. In fact, at this point, he wrote this book in um, 56 AD is what we believe. In 66 AD, he would have been put in prison until he was then executed. Okay, he was executed by the Roman government. So here it says not to resist the ordinance, not to resist authority for whoever resists authority resists the ordinances of God. So was it the ordinances of God that killed Paul? Well, if you believe that God is sovereign, then yes, it was God's way of graduating Paul from this earth to heaven. But I think it's interesting, though, because if you look, why was Paul in prison? Now, there is a form of thinking out there, and I'm not really sure what it's called, but if you, uh, you run into it with certain people who have all these crazy ideas about Christianity and government, and one of them, which I consider to be a little crazy, is that Christians should always always obey every law and always, always submit to everything in their government, yada, 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 based on the scripture. Well, if you look at the balance of the people in the Bible, those who even wrote this book like Paul, compared to the verses that we're reading right now, we see that while we are to submit to ordinances of law, 
We are never to submit more than we submit to our permanent citizenship. Do you guys realize that you're not citizens of the United States of America? You're citizens of heaven. Secondly, you are temporary. You're living on a visa right now. You're temporarily a citizen of the United States. As a citizen of the United States, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to pay your taxes. You have a responsibility to vote. You have a responsibility to be responsible. But more than any responsibility to a flag, to a star-spangled banner, you have a responsibility to God and to his nation and to his country and to his world, right? So with this verse, I think it's interesting just to make sure that we understand we as Christians um, are to do all things to live peaceable, with other, with other men and women. And we are to obey all ordinances of the land that we live in unless it violates, A, the spreading of the gospel, which is something that we see Paul in prison for several times. He didn't care if he was breaking the law when it came to spreading the gospel. Why? Because that's a higher law that he adhered to. And then B, the moral laws of the Bible. And if you're confused about what the moral laws of the Bible are, look at Exodus 20. There's a 10 of them right there. And they really kind of encompass all of it. Um, so we could actually spend a lot of time talking about this subject, and it's very interesting because there's so many examples from Scripture, from you know the uh, just in David and Saul to the midwives in Egypt and Exodus, whenever the Pharaoh said kill the young children and they wouldn't kill the baby boys. But we're not going to spend all that time because we don't have all that time. Just suffice to say, Paul is writing about submitting to government. But he's also a guy who is an ex-con. <laughs> he's been in prison. And I think that's funny because here's this guy who's been in prison, uh, part of an apostleship who all have been in prison or all have been killed by some form of governing authority, yet he's saying submit to government. So take that in balance and think about that for yourself. But here's uh, verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to do good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, as we've already pointed out, Paul did good, and yet Paul still ended up in prison. But you know what, though? If we do good, it says we'll have praise from the same. <clears throat> I love that, because there is nowhere in Scripture, and nowhere in this Scripture particularly, that at all um, promotes in this verse, or in really any other you can find here, civil disobedience, okay? Civil action that is violent in any way, all right? Paul was civil, Paul adhered to civil disobedience. When he preached Christ, when the apostles preached Christ, when they were told by the Sanhedrin not to preach Christ, they were practicing civil disobedience, okay? But there was no violence there. There was nothing in it that violated God's moral law whatsoever. So I think that's what Paul is coming to here, when he says, when you do good, you'll have praise from the same. It doesn't mean everything's going to go right for you if you're a Christian. You know, like Pastor Mingi pointed out, we are getting to a place in time where we're going to start seeing some persecution. We're going to start seeing workplaces become more and more hostile towards Christians. We're going to start seeing, um, you know, business owners who stand up for biblical moral ethics and issues come under persecution. But there, in, inside of that, the idea is do good. Always, always do good. And whatever you're doing, are you doing good? When you go to a rally, are you doing good at that rally? When you go out to eat, are you doing good? And every day of your life, are you doing good? And are you gaining praise from the same? It's an interesting thought. For he is God's minister, verse 4, do you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. 
For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. And I want to stop right there for a moment, because I really think that there's a couple verses in this chapter that are key verses to understanding what it is that God's getting to, and I think this is a big one. It says, Therefore you must be subject, not because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. What is our conscience? It's that thing between me and God. It's that thing between you and God. When I think of a conscience, I always think of Psalm 51. Okay, there we have a psalm from David, his heart's cry in the midst of a time when he had, you know, done a double whammy. He hadn't just picked up another stick of gum at the convenience store and not paid for it, or fudged a little on his taxes, or whatever it is. He didn't do that. He literally killed a man, killed Uriah, slept with his wife, got her pregnant, and now he's convicted of it. He knows it's going to come. Because of that sin, if you read through the, the stories of David um, in First and Second Samuel, and you even read through the rest of the stories of his lineage after him in Kings and Chronicles, that sin was an impetus for tons and tons of sin later on. Tons and tons of hurt. Okay, and David was a godly enough man, an introspective enough man to know he had screwed up in a major way. Many, many people were going to get hurt because of him. Many people had already gotten hurt because of him. And yet there in Psalm 51, what does he say? God against Uriah and Bathsheba have I sinned? Against the country of Israel have I sinned? No, he said, God against you and you alone have I sinned. In that moment, despite all the collateral damage that that decision was causing him, he realized that his life was between him and God. And that was the first place, that was the first relationship he had offended. And honestly, I think that this verse 5 is a really good verse to focus on when you're trying to understand what's going on here in Romans chapter 13. Because your relationship to your government, your relationship to your society, does not responsible, you're not responsible to me, you're not responsible to Pastor Mike, you're not responsible to your church, you're not responsible to your family in those relationships, you're responsible directly to God. How you vote is responsible directly to God. How you talk about our president is directly responsible to God. You're not going to have to answer to your wife or to your children or to anyone else. You're going to have to answer directly to God over these things. So in handling all issues between yourself and any societal government, that issue is between you and God. And what can you in good conscience say, do, and be before God? That's a question that all of us have to answer individually on our own. But I love that because here in the midst of this, like, just do this, do that, you know, uh, clear-cut message that Paul is, Paul is laying out, he brings it back to your relationship with your government, with whatever form of submission you're dealing with. You know, and we can even take this down to a uh, marital relationship, a parental relationship, a relationship between you and your boss, okay? Anything that you might find some form of submission in, you're not going to have to answer to them. You're going to have to answer to God. And how will you answer? What decisions are you making that you're going to be willing to answer for in front of him? There are two schools of thought I want to talk about when it comes to this scripture that I think are really interesting, and there's a lot more. Um, I'm in no way an expert on this. I'm in no way a scholar. But I know that there are two that I've run into uh, from several different people and two that have captivated me. 
the one take Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, and they uh, take it very literally. They're pacifists. They believe that, you know, aside from, as we discussed, breaking God's moral laws or violating the gospel, we should obey everything. We should never, ever have any kind of reason for um, rebelling against the government in any way, shape, or form. Okay? So you have that group. Then you have another group that's really interesting, and I kind of I, I call it the, uh, the government blueprint group. They look at verses 13, uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and they look at that as a blueprint for what government is. And if your government doesn't match up to this blueprint, then it's not government. It's a lot like if you'd never seen a dog or a cat before in your life. You had no idea what they were. And I told you that at 1 o'clock today, a man was going to come to you and he was going to sell you uh, a dog, but I told you, make sure it's a dog, not a cat, because cats are awful, and you don't want a cat, and cat will just bring you pain and misery. So, I tell you that a dog and a cat have four legs and four paws, they have a tail, they have two ears, and they have one nose, and they have two eyes. Well, both of them have that. But then I tell you that a dog barks and a cat meows. So I say, make sure that you buy a dog, not a cat. So this man comes up to your front porch door, and he gives you this animal and tells you it's a dog. And it's got four legs, four paws, a tail, two ears, and a nose, and two eyes. And you're just about to hand him the money to finish the deal. But then all of a sudden that animal meows. Now according to what I just told you, you know that there's something going on. It's not a dog. It's probably a cat, right? So that same group looks at this form of government the same way. If our government doesn't look like this, 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 and this, then what we actually have isn't a government at all which means that we can't then be submissive to it. And as Christians, it's our moral duty to then create a new form of government, a government that actually matches this. It's a really interesting camp. I'm not necessarily in either camp. I'm somewhere in between, honestly. But it's just kind of some food for thought, just an idea to just kind of throw out there. If you guys will, let's turn to John 19, 11. And I'm actually going to close with this. We'll have a, a short Sunday, which is always a good Sunday when you have someone who's 22 years old speaking. You know, we talked about the human condition. We talked about how without Christ, it is impossible for us to be submissive. We can learn submission. We can imitate submission, but I'm talking about true heart submission, true spiritual submission to God and to, to what he has in our lives. We talked about how the impossible can be accomplished through Jesus Christ. We talked about how he asks us on a regular basis, much like in Matthew 5, love your enemies. Well, how do I love my enemies? Read the rest of the book of Matthew and I'll show you. He doesn't just ask us to do the impossible. He shows us how to accomplish it. But here I want to talk about something else, though. Because as I said earlier, that Greek word, exosia, or however you say that, it's, it's spelled, if you want to look it up later, it's E-X-O-U-S-I-A. Um, that word is used multiple times throughout the scripture, and it's the powers that be. And like I said, it can mean a multitude of different things. In Romans 13, it's translated because the meaning is for judicial authority. But another place that it's used, I find really interesting, in John 19, in verse 11. And here we see uh, Jesus Christ, the eve before his crucifixion, and he's going through all of these 
uh, trials, right? He has the trial of Herod, his trial of Pilate. They bounce him back and forth, and Herod and Pilate become buddies that evening over the death of the, the only pure and righteous man that ever was. And it's really interesting, because Jesus' conduct throughout the whole thing is astounding. He's quiet, he's reserved, he's composed. And it says at this point that Pilate will actually start in verse 10. Pilate kind of gets frustrated. And if you do your history reading, Pilate was not a good guy. Pilate was a very angry, very violent, very evil man. I mean, he killed a lot of people in his time. And at this point, he had actually caused so much unrest in Jerusalem that he was kind of on the last strings with the, with the big guys up, up top. You know, the, the higher echelon of government in the Roman Empire wasn't too thrilled with Pilate at this point. So here Pilate's got... The entire Jewish community, which has never been a very fun, happy, loving Jewish community, you know, at least since Rome's taken over, they're all up in arms about this one guy. He doesn't really know what's going on. He has no evidence, nothing to convict him, to crucify him. He's not really okay with him dying because there isn't, he's, you know, Jesus Christ isn't a criminal. Um, and so Pilate's trying to talk to him, trying to make a decision, and Jesus is silent. That's got to be super duper frustrating for the guy. So then in verse 10, Pilate says, Are you not speaking to me? Kind of out of frustration. Do you not know that I have power? That same word, that same Greek word, meaning power over you, that judicial power over you, to crucify you, and power, that same word, to release you? And Jesus' answer is amazing. His one reply to Pilate, You could have no power, same Greek word, at all against me, unless it had been given you from above. And guys, that's the thing that you have to understand. Our Lord and Savior was at the hands, not of his government, not of the social regime, not of the society. He was at the hands of God. At the point of death, he was at the hands of God. God had given that power. And as you guys have already covered, Romans 8.28, one of my favorite chapter verses in Romans. It says... And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And really I wanted to close with a challenge, because Romans 13 is a challenge. It's not a, it's not a set of scriptures that you just read passively. I mean, if it doesn't shake you up and make you think about stuff, read it again. Do you believe that God is in control? You know, we turn on the news, and I'll be honest with you, I, I'm 22 years old. I have a lot of friends that are older than me. I have a lot of friends that are way older than me. I know a lot of people who are in their retirement age. I don't think I'll ever see retirement, honestly. And that's not me being doom and gloom. I'm not being, you know, super negative. I honestly don't think so. Looking at the political atmosphere that we're in, looking at the geopolitical atmosphere that we're in, I don't think there's going to be a lot of security for me in my future. You know, I really don't. Financial security, I'm probably not going to get that beach house on Maui that I've always dreamed of or anything like that. But so the question comes down to me, do I believe that God is in control? Turning on the news, it's 24-7 hate now. I mean, we see everything that's going on with Michael Brown and how we're still hearing about that. We see everything that's going on with, you know, the Supreme Court passing that gay rights to marriage in all 50 states. Um, every time we turn around, we see nothing but trouble, nothing but indecision, nothing but chaos almost. You know, daily there's some kind of riot going on. I mean, you even look at the news just in St. Louis and how many murders there are and how that's picked up in the last year. Do I believe that God is in control? That's what the scriptures of Romans 13, 1 through 7 really come down to. Do we believe that God is in control? And more so, do we believe that God is in control and that everything he allows in our lives 
are for good, for our betterment. You know, Jesus Christ didn't want to die on the cross. If you read the account of him in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, he actually asked God, please, is there any way this cup can pass for me? But he realized that even though it was a hard road that Christ, that God had called for him, it was for our betterment. Sometimes God can call us to walk hard roads, and honestly, looking, looking at the news, looking at stuff like that, I don't know, I'm not, a, I'm not an analyst, but I'm going to say that we're probably, it's not, probably not going to be, you know, roses and cherry pops and whatever else is, whatever other colloquialism you want to use that's significant to our area, it's probably not going to be a stroll in the park. There's probably going to be some hard times coming through. And the challenge that I see for myself is, do I believe that Jesus Christ, God the Father, is not only in control, but that everything that happens, everything that I see on the news, everything that I see related to my job and my taxes and my stability financially, uh, medically, all these different things, that it's for my good. Because what does Ephesians say? That God is the giver of good gifts. He's the Father of lights. He's incapable of giving us anything bad. Do you understand that? He's incapable of doing anything to harm us. Everything that he allows in our lives is for good. And you know, that's a hard truth to swallow. You know, we've got a girl at our church, she's seven years old, and she has brain cancer, and it's, it looks ter- to be terminal. I mean, it's been terminal for a while. She's fighting it, we're praying, but you know what, how much good God has done through that? Her whole family has come to know the Lord. Her whole family has come to church. And if they were sitting right here, I'd say that in front of them, because they'll even tell you everything God can use to bring to good. You may not understand it, and I, and I can tell you this much. You know, you guys are having a lot of grace with me because I'm very young, and I haven't seen a whole lot of bad yet. So I thank you guys for the grace you guys are having with me in saying this, but everything God can use for good. So let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we thank you, Father, for... Uh, for just everything that you do for us, Lord. Um, God, it's so easy to look at the future, to look at the news, to look at just everything that's going on, Lord, and to, uh, to wonder, you know, where do we fit into it? How, how are we going to get through it? Um, you know, uh, I've been in a family where we've had job layoffs and, and, um, and medical emergencies and all these kinds of things. And Lord, it can be so difficult, Father. But Lord, you give us your word, and Lord, your word is full of hope and full of promise. And God, that's why we gather here on Sundays. We don't gather here on Sundays, Lord, to to talk about what's wrong with the world or to talk about what's wrong with our lives. God, we gather here on Sundays to, Lord, be encouraged, to be lifted up, Father. It's that one day a week where we can get around other people who are seeking encouragement, who are seeking, Lord, to be built up in your spirit, to go out and then live the life of faith, Father, knowing that you bring everything into our lives for a reason. So, Lord, I thank you for Romans 13, Father. I thank you for a reminder in a time when we think that our government can never be further from you, Lord, that really our government's not all it's cracked up to be. It's not as independent from you as it thinks it is, Lord. And so, Lord, I just pray for a heart change in myself and and those here, Lord, and in the church of your Son, Jesus Christ, in general, Father, that we would be Christians who don't let the news dictate our day, but, Lord, Let the truths in your Bible dictate our day, Father. Please just fill us with your spirit and guide us and bless us as we go. In the name of your son, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ezra. I think it's interesting that when Jesus came to the earth, being the son of God, but not considering himself, uh, you know, he 